Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute. Uh, my name is John Lenchowski. I'm president of the Institute. And uh, some of you may be new to us. And for those of you who are, uh, we are an independent graduate school of national security and international affairs. And we have five master's degree programs, a new doctoral program, and 17 graduate certificate programs. And if you're interested in learning more about our uh, curriculum, which is unique in its architecture, and perhaps even in its faculty, uh, uh, please uh, feel free to speak with one of us on the staff or faculty afterwards. Um, it's a great pleasure for me today to welcome uh, a distinguished speaker uh, who is one of the nation's great experts on, uh, on Chinese affairs. Roy Kamphausen is the Senior Vice President for Research at the National Bureau of Asian Research. He uh, provides executive leadership uh, at the Bureau for uh, their work on security, politics, energy, economics, and trade. Uh, and he also uh, oversees uh, the National Bureau's uh, uh, engagements with the executive branch, the Congress, and foreign embassies uh, here in Washington. Uh, he has expertise in, um, the, in the Chinese People's Liberation Army, U.S.-China defense relations, broader East Asian security issues, uh, innovation and intellectual property protection. He has uh, uh, he's had several academic associations in the past, and he's currently an adjunct associate professor at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. Uh, he's a senior advisor on East Asian Affairs for the University of Connecticut's Office of Global Affairs. He lectures regularly at uh, leading U.S. military institutions, including West Point and the Army War College at Carlisle. He has his bachelor's in political science from Wheaton College and a master's from uh, Columbia University in international affairs. He has studied Chinese both at the uh, Defense Language Institute and at Beijing's uh, Capital Normal University. He is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, the Asia Society, and the Council for Security and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific. I'm delighted that Roy has uh, carved out some time to speak to us today. This is a, a rare pleasure and an honor that you could join us. So, welcome to the floor is yours. Thank you, President Lenchowski. Uh, our discussion this evening really, in part, is derived from a fascinating late afternoon chat we had some months ago here in which I shared I've been wrestling for some time with the notion of how to come to grips with the totality of the China challenge. And so I'm going to speak with you on that topic tonight and hopefully, if not lend clarity to your own thinking, help to clarify some of my own. Uh, and and I will plan to leave sufficient time so we can have a good discussion afterwards and you can challenge or refute uh, the ideas that you hear. It's important to note at the outset that I'm speaking in my personal capacity. Uh, I've recently been appointed as a commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and so it's important for you to know that the views I express are not those of the commission nor NBR. Um, they're my own. You need to put your name on the website. Which website? The U.S.-China Security and Economic and Security Commission. It's there. I, is it? Well, yeah. I, I looked it up and I didn't see it there, but maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> um, well, I've entitled this talk China's Generational, China, America's Generational Challenge. Here's what I mean, three big thoughts. The first is that China, in all that it represents, is the principal foreign policy challenge facing the United States. Because of the totality of what is involved, 
It's the challenge that crosses the most dimensions and which is truly global. China is the principal challenge. Secondly, the China challenge directly addresses areas of American strength and prods at areas of American weakness, but at levels below what we might typically think of as a threshold for conventional conflict. But U.S. global leadership tradition uh, makes the U.S. best positioned to respond, indeed imperative that the U.S. respond. So it is an American challenge. And finally, it's a generational challenge. It's not something that we will sort out within a term or two of a presidential administration. Well, let me elaborate on each of these three thoughts. And in the process, especially since many of our group are students, I'd like to share ways to, uh, as to how to think about the challenge more than to uh, share simply what it is that we ought to come to grips with. As I mentioned, I'll leave some good time for Q&A, and so let's jump in. First, the totality of the challenge. I would argue that it's unmatched by any other single foreign policy issue from the perspective of the United States. It touches on every aspect of traditional American strength and leadership. Without lapsing into Cold War nostalgia, let me just say that the totality of, the, of what China represents far eclipses the capabilities of, of, the Soviet, of the old Soviet Union. I'll return to that a bit later. And of note, it is China's intent to build a multifaceted and nuanced national power. The Chinese call this comprehensive national power. They even have a formula that you can calculate net increases or decreases in comprehensive national power. Let me elaborate some of the ways in which they're building world-class capabilities. In China's military, a dimension with which I'm very familiar, they've put online new capabilities in their PLA Navy, China Space. They've now created a new strategic support force to, to manage that process. Their capabilities in cyber are well known. They have enhanced missiles of both ballistic and cruise missile variety. These are just some of the examples in which they are near or at world leadership. They're also undertaking an ambitious reform and restructuring process and with the intent to become more joint, more outwardly focused, perhaps even more expeditionary. They've created theater commands which are modeled on U.S. Uh, combatant commands. They've restructured their, their overarching uh, top leadership, the Central Military Commission, with an intent for it to look not too dissimilar in function, at least, to the U.S. Office of the Secretary of Defense. They've created new services uh, whose mission is now to uh, equip and train, much like the services in the United States, so that then the theater commands can focus on operations. And this is an ambitious process intended, as I mentioned, to make the PLA more joint and more externally and operationally focused. The net result, I think, is for China to become the preeminent regional military power, certainly by mid-century, uh, although perhaps uh, the intent is to achieve that earlier than that. And with the goal that no security decision within the Indo-Pacific region would be reached without China's input and assent. In the area of the trade and economy, we know China's meteoric economic rise has caused China to become the world's second largest economy. It's our largest, U.S. largest trading partner in goods. If you think of, uh, if you don't think of the uni or European Union as a collective entity, and it, an example of how China is leveraging this important economic and investment strength is its now several-year-old one trillion dollar uh, Belt and Road Initiative to export industrial capacity, create markets, develop global champions, and build strategic strength across Eurasia. The net goal is to create global champions to compete with and 
dominate markets where Western multinational corporations once led. A third dimension of the totality of the China challenge, perhaps not one we often think of, which I think is increasingly important, is China's focus on domestic control. We know about its uh, great firewall, but there are other dimensions as well, including this new social credit system in which uh, an individual is judged on the basis of their reliability and then their participation in civil activities is limited or permitted as a result. The ongoing and ever stronger crackdown on religion and rep repression of political dissent as well as uh, academic voices is ongoing. And, and these processes extend even to extricating Chinese citizens from abroad, Chinese style extradition, you might say, to bring home to Chinese style justice, or harassing foreigners who happen to be of Chinese descent, either when they travel to China or elsewhere. And this growing Chinese surveillance state, which is currently dedicated to internal control, I think we're likely to see expressions of the surveillance state abroad in the near future. And finally, there's the cultural appeal. This may sound funny, but uh, China is both one of the world's oldest civilizations. Uh, it experienced a century or two of pretty tough times, and now the world is seeing the resurgence of the Chinese state uh, and, and the um, re-emergence of China as a cultural phenomenon even within the last 30 years. And there's an attractiveness, there's an appeal to the China model, especially in the South, the global South, the third world, where uh, the model of China having raised hundreds of millions of its citizens out of poverty can be very attractive. The Chinese attempt to leverage this appeal by contrasting their approach with that of the West, especially the United States, and they use techniques like their Confucius Institutes to both enhance engagement, teach the Chinese language, but also spread positive propaganda about China and in the process diminish criticism of the PRC. And lastly, there's uh, China's participation or the systemic dimensions of China's participation. Um, it's, it has been a rule taker uh, for much of its uh, history since the establishment of the PRC in 1949. But with China's growing power, it now wants to be a rule maker or rule shaper, both in new institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Bank or in how enduring systems like the World Trade Organization actually operate. And often this is accomplished by placing key Chinese leaders in key positions within those entities. So, the, in totality, China's intent is to become a global leader as a regional military power and global economic leader at the same time. This is not a perfect analogy by any means, but it is almost as if the military threat that the Soviet Union presented in the 1980s was combined or were to be combined with the trade and economic challenges represented by Japan in the same era with the cultural attraction and systemic contributions of Europe at the same time. This is the China dream, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And it is the totality of this challenge which puts it at the top of the list for the United States. Second, China is America's generational challenge because China's approach directly addresses areas of U.S. strength to diminish or mitigate them while at the same time attacking areas of American weakness. The 2017 U.S. national security strategy calls this a condition of continuous competition, I think an apt term. Or as a mentor told me once when we were stationed in Beijing, he said the U.S. is both the model in many ways for what China hopes to become, as it is at the same time also the most potential threatening adversary against which China is preparing. So how is China challenging the United States? 
first in the military sphere. The PLA, China's People's Liberation Army, is modernizing within a unique strategic con uh, construct, of which I think there are two salient points. First, China is not existentially threatened by any other great power. It's worth thinking about a minute. The United States has made as its policy since the establishment of diplomatic relations in 1979, um, the conduct of productive and effective great power relations. The US does not provide an, exist an existential threat against China, uh, although Chinese leaders will sometimes say they feel a sense of containment. But the PLA is not modernizing against that threat. That's the first point. The second is that Chinese defense spending has grown tenfold in the last two decades. This means that the Chinese military can prioritize what it procures and in what quantity. It has no external stimulus against which it is modernizing. It sets its own priorities and executes at its own usually breakneck pace. Now, this is not a fail-safe system by any means. Often having a threat force define one's own modernization provides a sort of clarity and, and is a measure against which that modernization can be, uh, can be judged. So the PLA will make mistakes in this unique kind of setting, but it has this unusual luxury that we've not seen um, certainly since the end of the Second World War. The net result is what I call uh, a PLA capabilities demonstrating deterrence underscoring approach, meaning the PLA wants to demonstrate to the United States and other potential adversaries, but, but mostly the United States, that it has the capabilities to do great harm, and in demonstrating those capabilities, it wants those potential adversaries to understand the risk to themselves if they cross Chinese red lines. So we see these, these examples throughout China's space systems, its cyber approaches, the development of maneuverable ballistic missiles, longer range cruise missiles, drones. These are all examples of the types of capabilities that China intends for its potential adversaries to see and understand and to have an appreciation for the risk that they present to China, to those other countries. It extends this approach to how it operates um, near to China in, in specific challenges that it faces. And I would argue an example of PLA continuous competition in peacetime is the island building efforts of the South China Sea. China judged that the United States had a strategy that it could not and would not enforce with the use of force. And so it made a series of incremental decisions that were not opposed. And ultimately, we have resulted with the condition where we find ourselves now. I'm glad to talk more about that in the Q&A. <clears throat> My own view is that this military modernization effort is intended to reinforce a national strategic defensive narrative, an approach to dissuade a main adversary before conflict on terms favorable to China, and at the same time shape and dissuade lesser actors, again, in ways which support Chinese goals. Some call this gray zone competition. Whatever it's called, the United States is poorly structured to respond to this kind of below conflict level challenge. And so we either tend to dismiss it or overreact. And this presents opportunity for grave miscalculation. Often, the U.S. Department of Defense sees the new capabilities comes online, coming online and concludes, not without merit, that they are intended to counter American strikes without always understanding that China intends to wage continuous competition, if not war. But the U.S. responds defensively sometimes, and often without the confidence to compete in the same way as the Chinese do. And sometimes the United States self-deters out of fear that it does not understand the line between competition 
and conflict. The Chinese competitive approach in industry reflects, in my view, a related, if not identical, uh, approach. Here, the Chinese state has determined that what it hopes to accomplish as directed by its national industrial policies, the most central of which is the Made in China 2025 suite of policy documents, is to strengthen advanced industrial manufacturing capabilities. And to do so, it has unleashed the amazing coercive and computing power of the Chinese state to acquire foreign expertise, both in the form of technology and know-how, to advantage Chinese companies and thereby allow the emergence of Chinese national champions to catch up, compete with, and ultimately defeat, even within the home markets, Western companies, even the US. In May 2015, China's State Council announced the 10 strategic priorities of the Made in China 2025 effort. And not surprisingly, they range from areas like next generation information technology, robotics, matter, maritime engineering equipment, new energy vehicles, new materials, biometrics, and so forth. In short, the priorities of China's industrial approach is to one, indigenize, two, substitute Chinese technology for foreign technology, and then three, capture global market share. And the areas in which we see this are in semiconductor chip development, production, artificial intelligence, and the new 5G networks. The net in this area of competition is we see the pairing of state-led industrial policy with a lax legal framework and limited appreciation for property rights, all the while energized by dynamic Chinese entrepreneurs in ways that have struck at U.S. ill-preparedness. The U.S. system for years did not adequately protect its intellectual property, nor competitively leverage its strength in the U.S. market and financial systems against these Chinese challenges or to defend against predatory Chinese practices. The result has been, frankly, disastrous. The question is how U.S. policy can reshape this landscape in ways that both provide for highly innovative ecosystems to develop and thrive, while also enabling complete life cycle security for those very same innovation systems. The totality of the Chinese approach uniquely challenges the U.S. because of U.S. leadership. And as a consequence, I argue only the U.S. is, is structured to have any chance of addressing the totality of these issues. Finally, the third point is that this challenge is ours for this generation. As I mentioned at the outset, China is not a, an issue to be resolved within one or two presidential cycles. It's here to stay. In fact, if a generation is about 30 years, and we could differ, but that's a good number, especially because uh, it comports with what China's own planning goals are to achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Indeed, China has laid great store by what it hopes to accomplish by the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese state in 2049. It wants to build a modern socialist system that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, and harmonious. It also wants a world-class military by the same time, with military power commensurate with the status that China has achieved and a military that's capable of supporting the Chinese Communist Party, enhancing economic development, and fulfilling the China dream. It's a tall order, all within this next 30 years. And yet, there are numerous obstacles along the way that demand resolution within this same time. Obstacles for the Chinese state. The first is that the Chinese political system, the PRC political system, is a brittle one, even if it's responsible, responsive, and flexible, despite being authoritarian. 
I often wonder, does President Xi Jinping ever wonder whether it was a good idea to put the 150 plus senior party government and military leaders that are victims of the anti-corruption campaign? Was it, did it make sense to lock them up mostly in the same prison, Chinchung prison north of Beijing? The system is brittle. He's seen as a very strong leader. I think there are arguments for that, uh, but there are also there's a brittleness to it that remains to be uh, resolved. Secondly, China, as we know, has rapidly deteriorating basic material assets in the air, land, and water, <clears throat> all of which are in shortage, and all of which have been befouled <coughs> to a degree almost unsalvageable. Chinese efforts at uh, ecological restoration are important and underway, and they will take this entire generation to adequately address. China also has a looming demographic cliff. The Chinese workforce began, began declining in 2013. By the, by the middle of next decade, the workforce will have declined by 25%. And one statistic I read suggested that by mid-century, there will be 850 million Chinese retirees. There's a completely insufficient social security network to help address this challenge. And we know that the, the horribly unique family structure that the one-child policy has brought about means that the traditional familial networks to support um, aging members and, and grandparents and senior citizens is just not in place. Set aside the sociological impact of one child having two parents and four grandparents with no cousins, no aunts and uncles. Set aside what that means sociologically. Simply on the economics alone, uh, the challenges will be enormous. By 2050, one child will be 70 years old. <clears throat> there are also serious questions about the viability of China's financial system. McKinsey says total debt, total Chinese debt quadrupled from 2007 to 2015. They're frankly, the estimates about what total debt are are wildly disparate because the level of debt brought on by provincial and uh, local entities is largely unknown. And whether the impetus for state-owned firms to continue to borrow from government-backed banks will continue is an open question. It's a sort of form of Chinese stimulus, as we know, uh, but it's turned on and off um, to serve policy ends. And then there's the phenomenon of local government financing vehicles which if you read the same Financial Times article I read last week, suggests that these are being uh, used to extort continued loans from Chinese banks, lest or otherwise they uh, employ the anti-corruption campaign techniques um, if the banks are unwilling to keep the funds flowing. There's another dimension sort of canary in the coal mine, you might say. And that's the, the degree to which many American policy elites, often those who were so instrumental in development of America's policy of engagement towards China, uh, they're tiring of the effort. And they speak with terms like it's time for a structured disengagement, or there's a growing backlash against China within the, the same set of policy communities. And the challenge, I think, is that Chinese leaders see this phenomenon, and they think it is a temporal one. They think it is brought on by an administration that they don't entirely understand, and they believe they can wait it out as they have waited out many challenges in the past. I would submit this is a secular trend, and the administration reflects the broader phenomenon more than being the instigator of it, and the Chinese leaders would be well served to consider this trend 
and take uh, appropriate actions in response. Well, in conclusion, I've shared a, several ideas about the totality of the Chinese challenge for the United States, why it is one which the U.S. particularly must address, and why it is the work of this generation to do so. I've not provided any solutions, um, in part because the answers are not easy and they're not going to be found simply by thinking about the problems for a little while. They are the challenge of this generation. And so I encourage those with interest and commitment to give their professional lives to this generational work. With that, I'd love to hear your questions and comments and look forward to a good discussion. Thank you. question. I, this morning I had the chance to hear the Minister of Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council give a presentation. And it was striking because of his emphasis on values and the openness of the Taiwan democracy, um, both connecting Taiwan to the U.S. more closely, but also, I think, uh, helping us see how that more open system it can be responsive to, to challenges in ways that we have questions about the Chinese system. Uh, I've met several times with President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan. And she's a remarkable leader who actually believes that the people elected her to do a series of jobs and she's committed to accomplish it uh, and to complete those jobs, even if it means that she'll only get to serve one term. Uh, because they're tough jobs and, and doing pension reform, for instance, in a system like Taiwan's is really resulting in, in a strong backlash against her as a political leader. And yet she says, I was going to do it. Our, our country and our economy needs for it to be done, and so I'm going to do it. Um, and you contrast that with the, the Chinese leader, and the, I think the contrast is striking. Um, Taiwan's challenge is that the allure of the mainland is drawing young people across the strait. Um, and often the Chinese side will pay a premium price. And so that, that there's a, a sort of hollowing out of uh, Taiwan's human capital. Um, I think in terms of its diplomatic and security posture, uh, Taiwan is becoming ever more dependent on a strong relationship with the United States. I've had the good privilege to get to know the chief of general staff of the Taiwan military. He's a very far-thinking uh, and visionary admiral, and he has developed a strategy to defeat a potential PLA invasion. I think it's, it's both a savvy plan and one that can be executed. Uh, but it is, frankly, one that can be accomplished over the near term, but, but over the longer term would be very difficult to, to carry out. At the same time, you see uh, shrinking numbers of states that diplomatically recognize Taiwan. And so the importance of Taiwan's new southbound policy to, to create linkages, both economic, cultural, uh, and otherwise within the countries of, with the countries of ASEAN becomes a very important effort. Uh, but at the end of the day, you, you look at the gravity of the situation and you, and you worry that without active engagement on the part of the United States, whether it's sustainable, right? A country of 25 million people sitting 80 miles away from a country of 1.4 billion. Uh, I think we need to look at that dynamic and, and, not say, and not throw up our hands and say it's too hard, but rather look at it realistically and continue to work on those areas together that that keep Taiwan a successful, self-governing, and independent entity. 
in the back and then here, in the back first. By mid-century, yeah. Okay, so we have dependence on semiconductor metal, it's coating. They've got deteriorating natural resources. I've kind of attested it a little bit at one point in 2009. It's a separate story. And then they've got um, a, a, a vastly aging workforce. So that means how does the whole Chinese expansion into Africa figure in? One, it would check off the whole natural resource angle. Two, it would definitely check off the whole uh, idea of coltium. So I read in a, I read in a headline, might have been the Wall Street Journal, where someone was saying that Ghana is the future of Africa, and I understand that China in particular set up a lot of tech companies in Ghana. Is that maybe part of its answer to the declining workforce and the rejuvenation of natural resources? Or is that going to be like one of those over-expansion things that you were talking about? Mm. Because you said that it doesn't really have an existential threat, which means you can just keep growing and growing and growing and not necessarily see the number. Let me answer in several ways. First, uh, it could be, right? The, the drive to get resources uh, is a global one, and Africa is one of the places in which um, China sees the opportunity to get resources, both commodities, but also basic natural resources. Um, what we tend to see, though, is that when Chinese firms go abroad, they tend to bring Chinese employment with them, or labor with them. And so um, it's not entirely clear how a domestic labor shortage could be could be redressed by um, different markets. Uh, it, it's not clear yet that they have begun to think in those in those terms. Um, Does that get it? I, I don't want to applaud all the time. I'm just going to say that the reason I'm going to ask this is because I, I was lucky to go to Hong Kong in 2009. And well, there was two things that you know, kind of piqued my interest when I said I was in Hong Kong, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to, one of the most beautiful cities. Maybe it was just me, but the first thing I noticed is that there were no like birds, squirrels, things. You know, people are quiet. This was Hong Kong, it's right next to the ocean, it's a port city. Two, I would read some of the, like, the China Weekly newspapers. This is like 2009. Lots of people were complaining, like they do here, that all the jobs were going to be leaving China and then going to Indonesia. This was 2009. So I remember Dennis Kucinich saying that globalism, globalization would be like a race to the bottom. Is that sort of vindicated, or is that just an oversimplified message? Yeah, Hong Kong maybe isn't the best example um, since it's reverted to Chinese control only since 97. Uh, and there are birds. There's a, a really nice park in central Hong Kong where they, they tend to hang out there. But, <laughs> right here and then here, sir. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think uh, some of your logic is very strange. And when we talk about Taiwan, and it's against uh, one China principle, and uh, the commitment of the government, and I think sometimes and you should, you should see that in the other way and beyond and uh, cross the street uh, prosperity and not uh, sometimes demonize China and uh, as a challenge because you can find China and the US are doing in the opposite way and when you are demonize China as a threat and China is trying to please the US 
And I wanted to ask your uh, one question is about if the U.S. is China and abundant, at the same time China is U.S., what does China will do to the U.S. or the U.S. will do to China? Uh, I'm not sorry, I don't understand your question. That means, uh, and uh, you, you see, and you, every time, um, every case is, you see, you, are, you understand China a lot, but I find that you know China very, very little. And that's not a question, that's a not, statement. Yes, of course, it's not a question, but it's a statement. And, and so that's why I ask, if you really know China, and you will know China's behavior, the principles towards the U.S., and also you will you know the U.S. policy towards China. And that, that's why I ask, if the China does the U.S. way to the U.S., on the other hand, the U.S. do China's way to China, and what are we all here? We'll have to think about that, I guess. Sir? You mentioned that our military often doesn't distinguish between a conflict and competition with China. And In any, or any circumstance, I might add. So, and you mentioned China wanting to be a regional power. Two things. One, where do you think they really compare their military to ours, given some of the super missiles that, you know, the hypersonic things that are designed to take our carriers out of one? And um, do you think we are, in fact, or not in fact, close to war over the islands of the South Sea and over Taiwan? So I think we should understand the capabilities of the missiles as absolutely including what the U.S. brings. Um, and over time they could be applied or employed in a global setting. But the platforms that would launch them are now mostly regional in their employment. And so it strikes me that they are, while they over time, we'll have more of a global reach at the moment are largely focused on, on the region. Um, and so we're not yet at the point where we, in comparison to the, the Cold War days, we are not at the point where we have a global strategic military competition with China. Um, and I would submit that is some time away. And China has a vote in that. Right, their their own aspirations will also have to determine whether that it that comes to pass or not. Um, but I think we're a ways away from that. Yet those capabilities are fungible in the sense that if the intent were to change, we might be able we might approach that point pretty quick pretty quickly. Uh, are we close to a war in within the first island chain? Um, my own view is no, uh, for uh, a variety of reasons. One, in the South China Sea, our stated position has been comprised of three points. One, we don't take a view on the sovereignty of the disputes. Two, we want the disputes to be resolved in a way which the, the, the resolution is amicably reached without coercive inputs. And three, that the broader access to the region is sustained. Um, and that has typically been characterized as freedom of navigation. Though I think that can be an overly restricting term. I think it, free access to the global commons within their regional dimension is maybe a more accurate way to think of it. Uh, and to date, we don't have a strategy which argues that we would use force to undo what has been done. Um, I'm not convinced. Um, I had a discussion with some members of Congress several months ago, and I argued we didn't have national strategic interests in the South China Sea. Uh, we, we have that 
operational interest, but it's not at risk. The island building campaigns don't, in my view, don't put that at risk. What we missed the point on, and I alluded to this perhaps too superficially, the, the, the challenge is really for our regional allies and partners. And we internalized what was taking place. Having, having developed a strategy, right, Secretary Clinton gave a speech in Hanoi in, in uh, July of 2010 in which she articulated the approach. And I think the Chinese made a, a strategic assessment and said the Americans will not fight for, the, for those <coughs> principles. In the end, that I think was an accurate judgment. And so having established that, then when the campaign kicked off, I have one very good authority from the chief of the Chinese Navy that they expected more pushback and didn't get it, and so continued. Now, what does pushback look like? Were we actually going to start? No, but, but there are a variety of techniques we could have employed. And then we publicized our freedom of navigation operations as a metric to demonstrate that we were doing something. So we twisted ourselves all up. Um, all that to say, I'm, I'm not sure it can be undone by use of force. Taiwan is a, is a related but separate question. It evokes passions on both sides of the street. And you've heard um, some important points here earlier. Um, the American commitments are to take any threat to be of uh, to be of grave consequence and one which the United States takes very seriously. And we've been, um, as you know, We've traditionally avoided uh, clearly articulating what we would do in each and every circumstance. I think the point at which we're at now is one in which Taiwan feels under more duress. It's a different kind of duress. We don't have missiles flying north and south of Taiwan the way we did in 1995 and 96. Uh, but we have circumnavigation of the island both by air and ship of the Chinese military and the, the sense of increasing isolation um, in Taiwan. That said, for conflict to result, it would, it would be the, the product of very poor and panicked strategic thinking in both Taipei and Beijing. And my judgment is the leaders there would, would not resort to that. I think President Tsai is, she's the same party as Chen Shui-bian, but she's an entirely different leader. She understands the risks, and I don't think she would, she would push it to the point where Beijing felt compelled to take the kind of kinetic response which would then result in the United States making a series of decisions that might plunge the region into war. So short answer is no and no. Yes? Um, you briefly mentioned the BRI initiative. Could you touch on some of the challenges that the digital Silk Road poses? And how it fits into the overall challenges for whom? The United States. Um, that the Asian Development Bank says that over the next thirty years, Asia needs twenty-six trillion dollars of infrastructure investment, and the Belt and Road suite of initiatives is potentially a very important way to address those infrastructure needs across the broader region. Um, I've always thought it was a, uh, a, a poorly asked question, not, not, not your question, but when, when people say, does the United States support Belt and Road? And I think in our system, that's not a question that a political leader can, can answer satisfactorily. Uh, we don't direct to where our firms go. We don't tell them what, what projects to be a part of. They make those own decisions based on their own set of calculations. Uh, that said, there are elements of the broader Belt and Road that have been raised as concerns. You specifically fo focused on the digital digital Silk Road, I guess the, the concern I've seen, I wouldn't even know that I share it yet, but the concern is that we'd see the extension of broader um, 
internet controls across that, that we see within China itself across the broader Silk Road. Um, those would have to be weighed against the, the potential benefits of introducing connectivity in those regions that perhaps don't have it or have a limited amount of it. And that's the, that's the huge temptation or that's the, the difficult judgment that political leaders in all of those target countries have to address is what are the downsides, what are the opportunities that, that are presented. That may have not really answered your question entirely, but maybe some context. How did you do any estimates on the effects that the next 30 years changes will affect their status on human rights abuses? And what is, you know, what are the U.S.'s, you know, Congress and government's position on the political refugees who are currently still in prison now, uh, from now you know, up to the upcoming 20 years, what do you foresee that we're going to do about the situation over there? Well, the nice thing, I concluded by saying I don't have answers, so I can dodge your, the second part of your question. I think, though, that the first part is actually something I could add to the, the presentation that's an element of uh, in the third point, it's an element of stress that the Chinese leadership um, is addressing in ways that don't, from an outsider, don't appear to be conducive to long-term solutions, right? Or, uh, or put more directly, that the repression of domestic citizens will almost certainly have a backlash at some future point, and Chinese leaders have to come to grips with that. Will that affect our relationship with we have a very conflicted uh, history on that point, I think, in the, in the United States. Um, and it has waxed, and our support for human rights in China has waxed and waned uh, between administrations. So it could well, but uh, I guess it remains to be seen. Yes, uh, it just happens to be being covered at the moment, but it's been, it's a, it's a widely occurring, if not escalating, trend. Um, and uh, retirees from the Chinese military uh, have a pretty, pretty good retiree benefit package. They don't have the requirement to continue to work. They have time available. They're used to working together. Uh, leading to the situation where there's a lot of military veteran protests. Uh, the question is, do we see any transference between that, those reactions from that cadre of people into the active serving military? I haven't seen any evidence of that. They're two very different groups. The latter group will become part of the former group at some future point. But in terms of uh, kind of crosstalk between the two, and an effort on the part of the vet dissatisfied veterans to get their active duty counterparts to lobby on their behalf. There's just very little evidence of, of that. Um, so we, I'm putting together a conference in the fall on the PLA and, and was talking just two weeks ago with our country's premier expert on military veterans in China. And he, and he said, you know, it's, it's going on all the time. It just happens to have made press at this point. So it's not a particularly new phenomenon or one that is perhaps more destabilizing than it has been in the past. You briefly mentioned that um, essentially U.S. policy elites have gotten a bit burnt out on, on China. It's a good way of saying it, yeah. Um, I have two questions kind of related to this. First off, when you say policy elites, do you mean academia, think tanks, the people who are writing you know, the policy papers? Or 
Um, my second question is, if you could identify a couple of reasons for this burnout, what would they be? So I think when I call it policy, it's an intentionally vague term, meaning I can self-define it, and unless asked the question, I don't have to clarify. What I mean is, this cadre of folks who have been engaged on China issues, China policy, for the last quarter century or so, give or take. And in many cases, they are people who are in academia or think tanks or journalism, maybe less likely in that career, and then maybe do a stint in government and come back and forth. So they've been engaged from a variety of perspectives. Um, I was not intending to suggest that it is the reflection of a particular administration, this one in, in particular. Um, and the reasons for it, I think, are, uh, uh, you know, many, and I'm sure there are others who would, would argue with my formulation, but I, a part of it is this broader sense that it's linked to dissatisfaction with perhaps our own position and a judgment that someone in some entity is responsible. And at the policy elite level, um, there, a sense that, you know, we've worked so hard at this. We have, we have tried to make engagement work. And we have uh, encountered in the, in the Chinese leadership now um, a lack of response um, equal to our own commitment. Now that's a purely psychological, emotional kind of judgment. And I would be hesitant to share it, except that I've seen it over and over and over again. Maybe it is that they expected through engagement that over time they would become more democratic, and now what they're seeing is greater repression, and so maybe that is... There are certainly some of whom that is, that could, that, that judgment could be said to be true. I think there are others, though, who have, who have very clear-eyed understanding of what engagement might not yield over time, that we might not see broader uh, opening. And it was still worth doing for, for its own sake. Even among that group, there are examples of folks who say it has, you feel as though it has run its course. So um, I'd like to ask two, two questions. You said China is continuously waging a war forehead to achieve its goal of the China dream. So in that, can you talk about the neighbors of China, especially the South China Sea, ASEAN in that uh, region? What is your current assessment with those neighbors and how China is manipulating that area to achieve its China goal? And what is the leader, the US leadership and the world order currently is there? Uh, how, how do we somehow mitigate the situation? Mm -hmm. The second one, is about the people here and around the world. You said China also is reaching out to the Chinese um, heritage lessons overseas and use them uh, as uh, extended arms. So in the U.S. in particular, with the census, we know that soon the Asian calculations, AAPI, whatever they say, will be the, the number of voters will be higher. Uh, than 50%, how is that affecting our U.S. values and leadership and democracy? Hmm. So, uh, I didn't say that China is waging continuous war. If you thought, Maybe you heard me say that, I said competition, and that's an important to understand, because I think that's a strategic judgment on the part of the Chinese leadership. Um, and, and a point I was trying to make is that we have to be able to compete as well. Um, your, your second point about impacts within the region I think is very important. Uh, and I specifically didn't talk about it because I talked about the focus on the United States. So just a couple of thoughts, maybe not as systematic as, as they should be. Um, the first is that American leadership means we need to engage with our allies and partners on the issues that are important to them in ways that often they can't do for themselves or are constrained from doing even if they could. And in this respect, I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I 
have often thought that uh, we mistook the focus of the island building campaigns as being a challenge to the United States when in fact I think you could make a better argument that it was a regionally focused effort. And the impact was felt in countries like Vietnam and Malaysia, perhaps even Indonesia and so forth. Um, so I, th that, that is an area where I think we need to spend more time and energy. And it's not just about the number or number of vessels in a freedom of navigation operation, right? The, the commitment has to be much more sustained, productive across all the dimensions of our own national power, including diplomacy, information, economics, and so forth. Last question, sir. Oh, uh, let's assume for a moment that the United States does not come up with a grand strategy to deal with China, that our response is as ambiguous as it has been. Let's also assume that the challenges that you've uh, uh, listed are not turned into dilemmas that can be exploited, and that the first half of your talk the prediction of Chinese activity continues unabated and they become the regional power in the area and are on the doorstep of world power. So what I'd like to ask you to do is to speculate for a moment, if you care to, on something that might be called the geopolitical imagination. What would be the consequences of that rise in power for the institutions and individuals who are not my age, the age of many of the people in the audience, what would, what, how would that affect their life chances here in the United States and the institutions that they inhabit? Hmm. Um, that's an asking me to engage in wild speculation. Uh, and I often will. Um, <coughs> did I mention I'm from Philadelphia and <laughs> I was so pleased that the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and I will wildly speculate that it's possible that in my lifetime they might do so again. Uh, sorry, that's the kind of wild speculation I engage in. So you could construe from my presentation that it's a competition that will be won or lost by the United States. And um, my argument is actually that the United States has to engage in the competition and that by mid-century we could have a different world order, but one in which the United States and potentially China play very important roles. And the process that we've gone through to get there is one of structured competition, not which results in great power war or even regional conflict, but one in which we see a challenge of, uh, and, and a competition of values approaches, um, systems, structure, and so forth. So it doesn't, I, I don't mean to suggest that unless we win, all is lost. I'm trying to get us to the point of thinking that we, we simply have to wake up and engage in this competition. Um, and I believe our Chinese counterparts have long been fully engaged. They're waiting for a willing competitor to re-engage with them. They're, they're happy to if we don't, but um, that, that's the prospect, I think. Uh, I, I, I'm hesitant to go to doomsday scenarios if we don't choose to do so, um, frankly, because it gets rapidly out of my area of competence. Uh, you, 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 you almost have to think about how structural decay and decline would, would lead to fundamental change in the world as we know it, and I, I realize that my thoughts on that probably don't have much more meaning than me talking about the Philadelphia Eagles winning the Super Bowl again. So that it's on a dodge, I just don't think I have a lot to offer there on that point. Two finger? Yeah, China has, in fact, <coughs> engaged in attacks, cyber attacks, and plan theft of intellectual property. There's not any job left. That is a form of modern warfare. Okay? And given the fact of the projection of where China's going, barring some kind of economic collapse, they will and intend to be the number one power in the world. 
But right now, China recognizes that it is vulnerable and cannot win a trade war. So why shouldn't we kill them in a trade war? Well, I think we have leverage in our approaches that has served us a lot of benefit in the immediate term. And we have to turn that leverage into a broader strategy. Um, I, I, third order consequences of complete conquest, right? I mean, our economies are so intertwined. I think we have to restructure them. We have to change the playing field. We have to reintroduce norms and practices that we thought China agreed to when it joined the WTO, which have been flaunted, I think. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily, in my perspective, requires a fundamental, right? It requires some very significant changes, but maybe, um, you know, China ceasing to be an actor is, is entirely is something that's hard to think about. Well, it wouldn't make them cease to be an actor. It would put them back in terms of forcing them to play by the rules, which they don't. So I, I'm a fan of, of reform to the systems that result in pl everyone playing by the rules. And I mean, they promise to play by the rules, and they don't. We're at the beginnings of potentially redressing that, right? But, I mean, we need to know what our next steps are beyond. Uh, the tariffs are an attention getter. I don't think they are. They're going to fundamentally change Chinese behavior. There's got to be second and third order steps that we, that we follow, I think, to bring that about. Well, this has been a pleasure for me to, to speak with you all today. Thank you for your attention, and I guess it's a good evening. <laughs>